This morning is the fourth part of an ongoing Mother's Day sermon series on founding mothers of Unitarian Universalism. Three years ago, we focused on Margaret Fuller, who along with Emerson and Thoreau is one of our three most important uh, transcendentalist forebears. Her 1845 pamphlet, Women in the 19th Century, was the first significant work to take the liberal side of the question on women's rights since the days of Mary Wollstonecraft, who had written A Vindication of the Rights of Women 50 years earlier. Fuller was also America's first female foreign correspondent. Tragically, she died in a shipwreck on her trip home from Europe when she was only 40 years old. Two years ago, we reflected on the lives of the Peabody sisters. Uh, Mary Peabody, an important educator in her own right, who married the uh, politician and educational reformer Horace Mann. Sophia Peabody, a talented painter who married Nathaniel Hawthorne, a novelist um, most well known for The Scarlet Letter. And Elizabeth Peabody, the author and translator of half a dozen books who also became the publisher of Nathaniel Hawthorne, William Ellery Channing, Theodore Parker, and Margaret Fuller under her own imprint. She was also the celebrated founder of kindergartens in America. Last year, we explored the life of Julia Ward Howe, who, in the words of one of her biographers, had six children, learned six languages, and wrote six books. She was most famous for writing the lyrics to Battle Hymn of the Republic. She was also president of the New England Women's Suffrage Association and helped found Mother's Day, as you heard earlier from the Mother's Day Proclamation for Peace that Danny read. In future years, I look forward to telling you about many other of the founding mothers of our faith. There are so many path-breaking women. There are plenty of Mother's Day sermons for years to come. Uh, Judith Sargent Murray, an early American advocate for women's rights, who was married to John Murray, the founder of uh, the universalist half of our UU heritage. Olympia Brown, another universalist who in 1863 became the first woman ordained with full denominational authority in any U.S. religious movement. And Sophia Lyon Fogg, who revolutionized 20th century UU religious education. In, in these history-based sermons, my intention is not to, or my hope is that I'm not just overwhelming you with names and dates. Uh, my hope is that at baseline, your takeaway will be um, a sense that as Unitarian Universalists, we stand on the shoulders of giants, many of whom were path-breaking women. It's important to retell these stories from our history that we might continually better inscribe them into our sense of self, of who we are as a movement, uh, allowing the lives of our ancestors to inspire us to live with more courage, more compassion, more freedom in our own time. This year, our focus is Mary Moody Emerson, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson's aunt, whom he called his earliest and best teacher. I'll be drawing from a landmark biography written in 1998 by Phyllis Cole, an English and Women's Studies professor. It helped raise awareness about the extent of Mary's influence on Waldo's life, and I'll be following Cole's um, choice of breaking the scholarly convention uh, before her book of referring to Ralph, Wal um, Ralph Waldo Emerson by his last name, Emerson, and by uh, Mary as Aunt Mary, only in relationship with him, and instead, for the purpose of the sermon, I'll be using the family names of Waldo and Mary to put them on equal footing. 
Relatedly, I realized recently that I never ended up preaching a sermon on Ralph Waldo Emerson. I had planned to, and then it got delayed for various reasons, and I remembered actually lecturing about, I was remembering lecturing about him at Wesley Seminary and not actually preaching about him, so I will plan a sermon on uh, Waldo for probably in the next year. But beyond uh, his significance, which is great, it is equally significant that a full generation before Waldo's early manifestos, Mary's almanac was claiming a life of solitude, the importance of that, and an experience of God through nature and the imagination. Her letters formed the matrix of his thought both early in life and through the years of his landmark literary utterance. However, prior, prior to the influence of second wave feminism in the 60s, which led to this women's studies revolution, especially into the 80s and beyond, as women who became trained as PhDs in the 60s uh, entered fully into academia, Mary's influence on Waldo had been noted, but it had never been extensively explored. Emerson himself partially acknowledged his intellectual debt to his aunt, but that the fullness of that debt has become increasingly apparent uh, in recent studies of Mary's almanac and her letters. The almanac is her decades-long journal begun at age 20. She lived to be 88. Her almanac was thought lost or destroyed, but in 1981, Dr. Cole rediscovered it in a box of uncatalogued Emerson family papers and the Harvard Library. It's constructed from letter paper. She kind of used whatever was around, wrote on it, and then stitched it all together with thread to make a book. So these handmade booklets often run greater than 1,000 pages. Um, there were, they display multiple genres, including letters, spiritual diaries, original compositions. Their content is actually primarily commonplace book quotations with her commentaries on them from her extensive uh, readings throughout her lifetime. Uh, these miscellaneous almanacs represent her, also her most experimental expressions that are, as a writer, and those are often the pieces that influenced Waldo the most. She often would, before she would bind them up, she would often share pieces of her almanac with friends, and there are even periodic notes that you can find that say things like, to any nephew who may read this. Uh, her almanacs are in the process of being published online in a free digital edition, so you can already see parts of them. Waldo's own extensive journals include extensive sections in which he would transcribe letters from Mary that he um, received, as well as pieces of her almanac that she temporarily would let him borrow. He would transcribe them, so he had his own long-term pers per personal copy. And we can even see in his letters many places where he literally begged her to send her more of them because he found them so valuable. And in 1837, the year after he published his breakthrough essay, Nature, in his journal, he listed Mary as one of his seven most important and vital benefactors. There are also multiple instances in which um, Waldo published um, revised versions of Mary's writings. Uh, often her writing was fairly cryptic and fragmentary, so he often improved it, but he would often quote it and use it without attribution to her as the source of his original inspiration. One of the most ironic examples is from a passage in his 1859 essay, Culture, that was about solitude. So he's writing about the virtues of being in solitude and being alone and of the thoughts and experiences that arise in solitude, but he was ironically drawing from his relationship with his aunt, the sort of opposite of solitude. And the wisdom was from her direct experience of solitude, not his own, though certainly he had plenty of 
original experiences in solitude. I don't want to overstate the influence of Mary on his life. At the same time, it's true that because Mary was unwilling or unable to publish her words, those excerpts, at least to him, did not count as a written text that he needed to attribute. He'd, he called them living wit, like conversation, did not recognize an authoritarian right there. Though certainly many scholars you'll note in footnotes will say things like, I owe this to a conversation with thus and such, so, uh, but Emerson did not attribute it. There's much more to say here about how um, Waldo's writings on self-reliance also forgot to mention that he daily depended on his wife, his mother, three servants, and a gardener to be self-reliant, uh, but I'll get to that in a sermon about him. There's also much more to say about Mary's legacy, but before continuing on that track, let me give you a few details about her life. She was born in Concord, Massachusetts in 1774, two years before the American Revolution. And to give you only one example of how remarkable her feminist independence was at the time, given the sort of patriarchal culture and home into which she was born, uh, she writes of the following as one of her earliest memories. She says, I remember my father punishing me once. I was two years old, and I came into his study, and I wouldn't make my curtsy. So if you were at that time a woman, a younger woman coming into the room where a an older male, you were supposed to make a curtsy. She called it her duty. I wouldn't make my curtsy, so he whipped me. Mother came in and asked, why have you punished her? And he said, because she wouldn't make her duty among coming into the room. And the, my mother said, what, whip a child two years old for that? My father said, my dear, since you have interfered, I must whip her again, and he did. Tragically, Mary's father died that same year from an illness. Uh, her mother, struggling to care for five children with her father deceased, um, sent Mary to live with relatives during uh, the rest of her childhood. And this early distance, um, uh, both from her family of origin, both increased Mary's independence and self-reliance, as well as caused her uh, quite a lot of grief and sorrow at various points. As Mary began to come into her own, she never expressed romantic interests that we have records of. Uh, she actually turned down at least two fairly enviable marriage proposals. Mary wrote regarding the prospect of getting married, she said, it just makes me feel sick. <laughs> she stuck to a, quote, permanent vow of noncompliance. She was drawn instead to independence, and although she only had a few months of formal schooling, she, and, and that in grammar school, she cultivated a lifelong journey of extensive self-directed learning. Fortunately, she had access to an excellent public library and read, read widely, including many uh, cutting-edge uh, liberal theologians. She also loved poetry, particularly Milton and Wordsworth, to give you just a taste of her writing style. And it's, it's quite elliptical and labyrinthine, but I'll, I'll, so I'll try to break it down. It's easier to follow reading than, um, than orally. It's difficult to follow either way. But, so this paragraph is about solitude, and she writes, Solitude, which people not talented to deviate, so people that don't have the talent to deviate from the beaten track, and she adds here parenthetically about the beaten track, the safeguard of uh, mediocrity is how she saw the beaten track. So those without that talent to do so without offending, uh, that solitude gives you that chance for learning and talents. It's what she called the only sure labyrinth, like we have here between the uh, sanctuary and chapel. It's a labyrinth, though she says, she says again parenthetically, though sometimes gloomy, 
that, solid, that solitude path. It's the only sure path to form eagle's wings, which will bear one further than suns or stars. So again, her writing style is quite idiosyncratic, it's quite difficult to follow sometimes, but it really does reflect a quite original and peculiar genius of forging new insights, uh, quite original for the time. There are also ways in which her independence kept her from being fully comfortable in either the traditional orthodox camp um, theologically or the more progressive uh, transcendentalist on uh, track of the time uh, led by her nephew. She was really too innovative and too free-spirited to either be fully comfortable among the Calvinists, but also there were aspects of traditional Christian theology that continued to be valuable to her and that left her not feeling fully at home in transcendentalism either. In many ways, she belonged to both sides and to neither. This dynamic eventually contributed to a growing divide between Mary and Waldo, uh, but even as the two were never as close as they were in his childhood and early adulthood, her almanac continued to influence him. I'll also share just one famous story from near the end of Mary's life. One evening, Bronson Alcott was hosting a conversation on the topic of the private life at Waldo's house, and Waldo himself was away lecturing that evening. Among those present, in addition to Mary, were Henry David Thoreau, his um, sister Sophia, and other usual suspects from transcendentalist circles. When one man in attendance proceeded to hijack the conversation in a way that Mary and others really disagreed with, he was pontificating about moral relativism, neither Alcott nor Thoreau could manage to rein him in. Mary herself intervened, and here's a description of what ensued as recorded by the journalist Franklin Sanborn, who was also a, a transcendentalist himself. He writes that rising from her chair on the west side of the room and turning her oddly garnished head toward the south side where the offender smilingly sat, she clasped her little wrinkled hands together and raised them toward the black band over her left temple, which is a habit she had when she was deeply, when she felt something deeply, she would do that. She expressed amazement that any man should denounce the moral law, the only tie of society except religion, to which she saw the speaker make no claim. She referred him to his Bible and to Dr. Samuel Clark, one of her early influences from childhood. She denounced him personally in the most racy terms. She did not cross the room and shake him, Sandboard said, as some eyewitnesses, uh, some non-eyewitnesses have fancied, but she retained her position, sat down quickly when she had finished, and was complimented by the smiling target of her words, who then perhaps for the first time felt the force of her untaught rhetoric. Her rhetoric may not have been formally taught, but a lifetime of self-learning had made her a formidable intellectual interlocutor. At the end of her life, Mary had also become increasingly involved with the abolitionist movement and both the anti-slavery movement itself, as well as in particular women's leadership in that movement gave her new hope for an increasingly equal role for women in the future even though she wouldn't live to fully see it. And although Mary was increasingly ill toward the end of her life, she was likely well enough on New Year's Day of 1863 to comprehend the sea change of President Lincoln's Emancipation, Emancipation Proclamation coming into effect. But she died a few months later on May 1st of 1863 at the age of 88. Six years after Mary's death, when Waldo himself was 65 and near the end of his public speaking career, one of the last lectures he ever wrote was in her honor. He titled it Amita, which is Latin for aunt. 
Years earlier, he had written a series of biological, uh, biographical essays called Representative Men, and meaning archetypes, men who are representative, who are archetypes, exemplary archetypes of their time and place. At that time, all of his examples were famous European men. With Amita, he expanded his scope to include his aunt. He wrote, it is a representative life which could hardly have appeared outside of New England, of an age now past of which I think no types survive. Perhaps I deceive myself and overestimate its interest, but to me it has a value like that which many readers find in Madame Guerin, Rahel Varnigan, and Eugene de Guerin. I'll tell you who those are in a minute. But it is purely original and hardly admits a duplicate. It is the fruit of Calvinism and New England and marks the precise time when the power of the old creed yielded to the influences of modern science and humanity. Here we see Waldo putting Mary in the same class as three famous women, a heretical French mystic, a German writer, and another French mystic known primarily through her letters and her journals, which is how we primarily have access to Mary. And Waldo was far from Mary's only public admirer. Elizabeth Peabody also expressed her esteem for Mary. Elizabeth both celebrated the ways that Waldo had really extended um, the Emersonian talent publicly that he had inherited from her aunt, even as she lamented the ways that Mary's talent remained buried to far too great an extent, primarily because of her gender. In 1910, a young Virginia Woolf, only in her late 20s at the time, also became aware of Mary's genius and influence on Waldo, and Woolf incorporated this insight into her study of the creative life and what she called the domestic contraction of women. On this Mother's Day, the life of Mary Moody Emerson is an invitation to honor those of our foremothers who have taught us to question received tradition and to pay attention to the wisdom of our own firsthand experiences. That was the paradigm shift of the women's movement, was to say that women's experience is equally or more legitimate than tradition or reason. We care about tradition, we care about reason, but women giving accord to their own experiences and demanding um, attention be paid to that was the catalytic shift that led to the successive waves of feminism. So in that spirit, I invite you to rise and body your spirit as we sing together a hymn that honors the inner journey of trusting your own experience that Mary Moody Emerson knew so well, a journey that is often only possible at its beginnings in solitude. Let's sing together hymn 352, Find the Stillness. Mm -hmm. 